Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 139 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 139, Scott and I are going to mostly talk about three topics, maybe a little bit more, but we're going to start with the meet that just was this past weekend, uh, just uh, two days ago, in fact, uh, down in Madras, Oregon. Uh, or if you're from Medford up in Madras, Oregon. So we'll talk about uh, what that meet was like and some scary things and some awesome things and some good things and various different anecdotes and some uh, observations that I had about how quizzers were quizzing that I think was a, a very interesting from a strategic and tactical perspective. Then Scott and I are going to deep dive into uh, CBQ three team versus two team versus four team quizzes. So the theory being that in second age, typically we'll have three team quizzes. And as Scott and I have mentioned more than once in the past on the pod, two team quizzes in second age need to be avoided like the plague. And so we're going to be and we've talked at length about why that is. Uh, and so would like to mer merge that conversation or, or continue that conversation into the H3 CBQ universe and discuss, well, is that still the case for two team uh, or four team or anything else? And to what degree are those differences still there? And how much do we care? And what can we do to mitigate those things? And then Scott has a really awesome uh, golf tech analogy to share that has, I think, some very interesting implications for quizzing uh, inter or at least a thought experiment for quizzing. And I think it'll be great to be able to go down that road. So to kick things off, we'll, let's talk about Madras Meet. Of course, for most folks, Madras is a very long drive. Uh, not for Madras itself, of course, because it's their home and not for Medford either, because it's uh, just I think it's like a little under three hours of a drive for folks in Medford to get to Madras, but for uh, the Puget Soundians of us in the district, it's usually like five-ish hours, give or take a little bit, four and a half, depending upon how fast you go. Uh, originally, well, not originally, I think last year, uh, Cuddy and I and Xander and Evie, I think that's it, we flew down. And of course, that's a cheat code because we were able to get there in like about an hour and 15 minutes or something like that. So um, much more, much more convenient uh, that way uh, and much more enjoyable. Also, the view is beautiful. But uh, on the way back, had, had we flown this year, we didn't fly this year, but had we flown this year, we would have been landing in the Puget Sound with very low clouds, fog, uh, rain, and it would have been night. Um, so we weren't keen on that. I certainly wasn't keen on that. So we ended up driving, which worked out fine. Um, and it was a fun uh, trip. I shared a, a, a car down with Andrew and Cuddy, and that was uh, fun and uh, in both directions. But uh, so in terms of the meat recap itself, um, I was kind of surprised and very happy pleasantly surprised we had no major tech problems so i'm not sure if the if the madras church has upgraded their wi-fi or something recently but you know wi-fi was great and strong at least for me in room one um, i didn't hear any reports of anybody else having problems uh, so it seemed like you know wi-fi was great uh, quiz sage actually worked without any bugs which was surprising a little bit because the night before 
Uh, in fact, actually, the entire car ride down, I was actually working on code uh, on my laptop in the back seat. And then uh, when uh, when we got to Madras, uh, had a break for dinner, and then worked into the night in uh, my hotel room before the meet, uh, literally editing code in production, which is, of course, you know, very, very not something you're supposed to do uh, if you want your software to actually work <laughs> for uh, for actual end users. So uh, was actually hacking code in production late the night before the meet and was um, terrified of the implications of doing that. But uh, fortunately, uh, shockingly, everything seemed to work okay. And uh, the uh, lesser magistrates, the LM units, the trigger sets, uh, Jonathan Van Schenk was able to show up uh, to the meet and he brought with him a whole bunch of Mark III triggers, which were fantastic, all 3D printed uh, with that kind of beautiful black finish on them. And uh, uh, the trigger itself, the trigger unit itself uh, at the top has a little bit of a click motion to it you can feel it click you can hear it click a little bit so uh, the quizzers loved them uh, i think they, they all functioned beautifully so that was that was really great and of course we had a great set of officials uh, for the meet and so i thank them you know at the end of the meet but i want to thank them again we just had a really great uh, bunch of officials that were able to keep the meet on schedule i scheduled the meet for 30 minute quizzes and at some points, uh, at least in room one, we were at at least twice during the meet, we were almost 30 minutes ahead. If not, I think maybe even more than 30 minutes ahead at one particular point uh, during the schedule. So that was fantastic, uh, just in terms of being able to proceed and everything going smoothly that way. Uh, and uh, so I'm I'm kind of on the lookout to consider if we maybe want to move from 30 minute quizzes down to scheduling 20 minute quizzes or 25 or something like that. 25 is going to be awkward, but 20 minutes is great because then you can fit three in an hour. The, um, uh, but, uh, but I'm not going to do anything, any changes right now because, uh, I want to get more than just one data point, uh, before deciding. So we'll see how things go at the next meet at EBC. If things run, reasonably well and generally speaking tend to run pretty well ahead of schedule at uh, 30 minute quizzes uh, at ebc then we may consider dropping to 20 uh, for at least some of them maybe not for, not for the first couple or two uh two or three just to give us an opportunity to catch up if we have a little bit of a late start but i think that was that worked out really well so other great news and really the the greatest news of of everything coming from the meet the best news that there was was that almost every quizzer was able to get at least one query correct and so that was that was fantastic being able to engage as many quizzers as we were able to engage uh, that was definitely a boost from sort of the traditional approach from years past so that was great the bad news was a fair number of the uh, quizzers were engaging entirely uh, via open book. And uh, so, I mean, not the worst thing in the world, uh, at, but it does show an indication that uh, I think some some memorization does need to, a little bit more memorization does need to happen. So some of the officials and some coaches were chatting uh, during the lunch break about ideas to help encourage uh, more memorization. So definitely want to put those into play. Uh, but what was really 
great. Uh, something that was no surprise because we saw this come out of IOC and the mini meet that preceded IOC was that those who memorized more, even if it was just a couple verses more, they earned more points. Uh, and this was this was fantastic. The idea that you know if you if you showed up and you didn't memorize anything, you could still put a couple of points on the board via open book. But if you had even just a couple of verses memorized, when those verses came around uh, in the rotation or not the rotation in as it randomly selected, those quizzers were able to uh, uh, trigger in and were able to earn in excess of one point. They were able to get either two or three or five in certain in certain cases. And so it was great to be able to see that there was, um, you know, as one anecdotal story, there was a quizzer who memorized about 10 verses uh, and picked up uh, a, some open book one point queries. But then every so often, not terribly often, but every so often they would get potentially up to five points on a verse that they memorized from those just those 10 verses uh, in the material. Now, granted, this is the first official mean of the year. It's the first six chapters only, and the six chapters aren't particularly large. And the 10 verses that this quizzer memorized were from Club 100, so they were fairly heavily weighted in the distribution. But that being said, you know, even with just 10 verses memorized, you're able to engage in a way that's stronger than open book and able to put, you know, fairly important amounts of points on the board for yourself and for your team. And so that was great. So the takeaway uh, for me was um, sort of a truism that I saw certainly out of IOC, but uh, from the mini meet as well, is that every incremental additional verse that gets memorized results in more points, uh, both for the individual and for the team. And so I want to just underscore yet again that memorization is really important. There's there's just no way to get around it. But the memorization does not have to be en masse. It's not like you need to memorize full material to be able to really dramatically improve your points. It's not like you're sitting at a, a, at a plateau when you've got 10, 50, 100, 200 verses memorized and it doesn't really grow until you get to full material. Uh, or at least it doesn't get significantly higher until you get above, say, 60 or 70% material uh, memorized. In this case, uh, each individual verse you memorize opens up an opportunity to increase your points. And so you get feedback uh, all along the way. So anything that you can do incrementally, if it's just memorize one verse a day, uh, even one verse a week, although I'm I'm sure everyone can do more than that. Uh, if they practice and they put it uh, as a routine, but if you can, if you can pack away a verse every day, verse every two days or something like that, three to five, six verses a week, uh, that, that investment will pay dividends literally at the next meet. So just encourage everybody to memorize there. And then the, the last kind of, uh, observation, uh, or takeaway that I had and Scott would love to get your thoughts on this. Uh, this is kind of interesting. I don't want to name names here, but there were different strategies and tactical approaches to quizzing from certain quizzers based on what they had memorized. And I thought these were, these were all great. <laughs> they worked very well for each quizzer based on where they happened to be, but they were different and they were tailored and they were fairly smart. And I just wanted to call out these different strategies. So I'm not going to name names here because I don't want to, you know, embarrass anybody, but there was a quizzer who had full material uh, and probably full material somewhere in the 95% verbatim 
uh, category. This quizzer had a really good grasp of the material, had references down. And like I said, 95% of the, the material verbatim uh, first time through. So what did this quizzer do in terms of a strategy? Well, they avoided quotes. They actually tended to avoid toss-up uh, queries as well. Basically, uh, even if their, their team was eligible, they would hang back on toss-ups. Now, why is that important? Because a toss-up tends to be a little bit slower of a trigger speed. You've got two teams instead of three. And so this particular quizzer was giving their, their teammates an opportunity to uh, win triggers uh, on the toss-up. Now, this wasn't universally the case, but it was a trend that I noticed that this quizzer tended to avoid quotes and tended to avoid toss-ups. Uh, now, why avoid quotes? Well, because the maximum you can do with a quote is six instead of seven. And so this quizzer was opting to optimize for the seven and not have the, the hit of a six. Then the quizzer would trigger on what I would call sufficient keyness of the prompt, uh, fairly typical uh, triggering uh, philosophy or plan there. And the quizzer would then think through the material mentally uh, to make sure the quizzer was aware of the full extent and was comfortable and confident in the response and then would call, you know, verbatim with reference at a verse and then do a full response. And uh, as a result of that, a, 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 you know, significant prep work uh, and investment from that quizzer, certainly, but this quizzer was able to just dominate uh, every, every quiz and dominate the meet. And it was fantastic to be able to see. Well, another quizzer, uh, this quizzer was, I, I think this quizzer was probably targeting club 250, might've actually been targeting a club 100 plus a few additional verses. It was difficult to see, but somewhere in that ballpark, I, I want to say probably was targeting club 250 and i'd say had of the verses memorized probably about 70 percent verbatim uh, on them and so this quizzer interacted differently uh in 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 quizzing they would trigger on recognition rather than on say sufficient keyness based on word counts or something they would trigger on recognition they would start responding synonymously so they they would trigger if they won they would get called up uh, the quizzer would start, would, would think about it for maybe half a second or two, and then just start speaking through the prompt and start into the response and would, would be doing that synonymously, but then would pause toward the end about usually about two words prior to the end. And you could see this quizzer kind of do something with their fingers. Uh, it was almost like a memory recall. They, they were kind of counting on their fingers or, but it wasn't really counting. It was like they would be moving their fingers almost like there was a, uh, an imaginary abacus that they were messing around with or something. And they would figure out like, okay, yeah, I can do this one verbatim. Then they would call verbatim and then requote the, the verse to the end and, and would get it correct. And it was really great. Uh, so they were, uh, and, and where they did this, this kind of happened through the course of the meet. So the first couple of quizzes they were in, they were responding synonymously and getting two points. But then somewhere in the latter part of the morning, 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, they switched to this other, a little bit more aggressive strategy. And it paid dividends where the quizzer was routinely getting four points instead of two. Uh, not all the time. Sometimes they would still answer synonymously and get two, but I'd say probably, 
75 plus percent of the time they were uh, going after uh, verbatim on the stuff that they were able to recognize. And that was fantastic. Then there was a third quizzer. Uh, I know for a fact this quizzer was only memorizing Club 100, but they memorized all Club, Club 100 verses. Uh, so they that was sort of where their memorization was at. But they only had them memorized synonymously uh, with about mm, 50% of them uh, reference re- recalled, being able to recall based on reference. So they were triggering on re- recognition, similar to the previous quizzer. But then they would think through about the reference and then call reference based on their confidence to respond and then respond. And so typically this quizzer was getting uh, twos, sometimes threes, sometimes ones. So sometimes they would trigger on something. Then then they would realize after thinking about it, like, oh, actually, I don't know that one. Uh, they would call open book and then be able to pick up the, the single point on it. Most of the time they were getting two points with synonymous, but from time to time they, w- they would recognize it and go, yeah, I, I know the reference. So they would call reference and pick up three. So between these three quizzers, it w- and I'm sure there were, there were more examples here, but it was really cool to see different tactical and strategic approaches to how to quiz both at the query level, the quiz level, and even the meat level. Uh, one quizzer, uh, we were talking during a break, uh, and somebody was saying, hey, when you went for that particular query verbatim on, I, I don't know, maybe it was query 12 or something, query 11, query 12 or something, they were saying, you should have actually just gone synonymous and locked up the quiz, because if you had gotten verbatim wrong, then the other team had a chance to outscore you. And the quizzer responded, well, no, I was supremely confident that I knew it verbatim and I wanted to do that, even though, you know, I was going to secure the, the, the team win either way. And I wanted those extra points to boost my individual average. So I thought it was kind of an interesting discussion to engage in. So, Scott, I've gone through a whole bunch of stuff, but any kind of thoughts on anything, anything that kind of sticks out for you? Going back to you said <clears throat> a lot of quizzers were only doing open book. What was the competitive landscape like? Like, what was the highest individual placement of a quizzer only doing open book? You know, was it like 12th? Was it like 49th? Was it third? You know? Uh, No, it it definitely wasn't third. I want to say over half were, I wouldn't say exclusively open book, but I'd say half were majority open book if that makes sense. So there was there was definitely way more open book usage than, than I would have liked to have seen. And I think that really is just an indication of the depth of investment in memorization. Uh, because I think, mm, I don't know, hard to remember exactly. I would really want to look at the stats for this and the data for this, but I want to say two thirds of the quizzers answered at least one question synonymously all that well no that's that's probably high i don't know it's re- it's really hard to say um but in terms of 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 what it did to the competition was if you were a quizzer who invested time in memorization you more or less could do quite well like there wasn't a feeding frenzy for for uh for queries i mean certainly there were not very many no jumps right but or no triggers but there were there was an there's opportunity abounding for everybody uh who memorized makes sense you talked about one quizzer who 
um, dominated the meet. Did it look like they were specifically, you said, avoiding cues because they were not the maximal possible points? I it I'm I'm mind reading here. I didn't ask the quizzer about it uh, about the strategy. I probably should have, but it seemed to me like the, this quizzer was avoiding cues. Uh, I don't recall the quizzer getting any cues in my room, and since they're you know one fourth of the material, I have to think that that was a strategic choice. Uh, that that was deliberate. And it would make sense to be deliberate because you're you're this person was reliably getting seven points uh, on correct queries. And if you go after a queue and you get it correct, the max you can do is six. So you're you're by selecting uh, non quotes for your query base type, uh, you're it's a way to maximize your point. That makes sense. Um, The the next quizzer was starting synonymously and pausing toward the end because if they had finished synonymously they wouldn't have had the if they were correct they wouldn't have had the option to switch to verbatim right yeah exactly exactly and so like she was starting her quoting through and you could see it in her face where it was it was like by saying it out loud and doing something with her fingers like an abacus virtual abacus or something she was recalling the information in her head and then she would stop short and have this moment of like do do i feel confident that this is verbatim or not and then she would she would come to the realization of yes i do then she would call verbatim and start over and and get it and it was interesting because when she calls verbatim and then was reciting the verse in verbatim mode she was actually faster at reciting it than the first time through with synonymous. And so like, so it was almost like she was working her way through it vocally, realizing she got it called verbatim and then was very confident, like, okay, great. This is it. Boom, 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 boom. And she, I I think when she did that, she always got it correct, at least in my room. Yeah. That's really cool because that is an option if you're fast enough, right? Right. To slowly upgrade. But the way that the rules are written um, it's not like, oh, I, I said every word but one <clears throat> um, ver- verbatim, even though I'm at the synonymous level. Let me switch to verbatim and I just have to finish that one word. Once you re- like upgrade your um, subtype, right? Right. Um, it restarts the basis for what you could be counted right for. Um, and so you have to have the time for it, but you do have, is it 40 seconds? Yeah, 40 seconds in total, yeah. So that, I mean, if you can execute on it, it's an, a tremendous strategy. Um, but yeah, I mean, you've got to be, pr- it's an interesting strategy because if you're starting synonymous, it means that you're not fully confident about verbatim, but you're giving, you know, you have the t- some time to try to figure it out. I wonder if they have kind of an internal clock of, I need to figure this out by 25 seconds to go or something, you know? Um, yeah, Because I know if I figure it out with, 12 seconds to go it's probably not worth the risk yeah that's very true and 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 most of the responses i really should have the data to be able to talk this through but i think most of the queries this quizzer was going after were things like phrases and chapters uh chapter references so they weren't typically and they weren't and they weren't adding a verse so the response that was required was not huge whereas the first quizzer i was talking about they were always adding 
a verse. And so, you know, adding a verse with reference verbatim, even if something, even if the prompt was like in the middle, uh, like a phrase that was in the middle of a verse or something, this quizzer would always recite the, re- the, the, the reference and then quote from the beginning of the verse, just because I suspect that's the easiest to do than, than to start in the middle. Uh, and so for them getting a, a second crack at it, where if they missed a word or two, being able to recite all two verses within the 40 seconds, that actually was not easy. I think there really wasn't an opportunity to do that more than maybe 40% of the time. Uh, so it was really more like get to the end. If you're not counted correct, try to think, where did I make a mistake? But that's really hard to do in that level of, of material, it seems to me. Yeah, I would agree with that. No, I mean, I think it's always really difficult to try to externally increase the level of competition because it kind of takes quizzers who have some amount of motivation themselves to start upping the ante, which forces other people to up the ante as well. And so if every quizzer who's currently doing open book is fine with how they're individually scoring and placing and with how they're helping their team, then I don't know. It's it's not like it's I feel like it's pretty rare for them to just generate the desire to do more than open book. I guess it's only one meet in. So um, it would kind of be if someone has done only open book for an entire year or something, it would seem rare for for me to see that quizzer switch um, with an upward trajectory. But it could be that between meets one and two quizzers who did open book were like, huh, that was kind of easy. Um, I scored okay, but I want to score more. And the only way to do that is to upgrade from open book. And I see that not that much verbatim memorization is required to pretty quickly upgrade my points. Yeah. And I think that last point of yours there is, is the key point. The, the idea that there isn't some sort of shelf you have to overcome. There isn't like a quantum leap that you have to invest in before you see a return on the memorization work even just memorizing one verse verbatim with reference granted it's not going to you know as the meat as the meats get more and more material you're going to get that verse showing up less and less but even when you put in just that little amount to memorize one verse ver- verbatim with reference you will see that verse come up and you'll be able to potentially get seven points off that so there were a couple of folks who you know, we're typically getting one point, one point, one point, and then the a verse that they memorized would pop up, and they would get five uh, or more in some cases. But but it was it was the uh, you would kind of see them do the 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 one point, one point, one point, and then all of a sudden a five, and you'd be like, oh, okay, that's a verse they memorized. Um, and so it was kind of it was interesting because it was very reflective of the notion of like. Even if you only memorize one, two, three, four verses, that level of investment will pay dividends. You will see a bump in your score. You will see your team scores going up, going up as a result of that. Now, certainly we don't want quizzers to stay there. We, you know, we're, we're hoping that that will be the juice to get them to uh, memorize even more than that and push upwards towards full, full material. But the idea being that even if you only memorize one or two verses, there is reward for that. Yeah. I think that's all I've got on the strategy. It's really interesting. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about uh, three team versus two team versus four team. So this is where I'm going to rely pretty heavily on Scott's uh, statistics and data science brain to think this through. But uh, 
in the universe of second age quizzing, typically we wanted to avoid two team quizzes because everything was really weird about them. Uh, essentially, they gave significant advantage, I think, to teams that were in the two team quiz uh, versus uh, three team. And they were just they felt weird, not quite as weird as XYZs or XYZs if you're from Canada, but just because the incentives were so radically dis uh, disaligned uh, for XYZs. But nevertheless, it in comparing a two-team quiz to a three-team quiz, there was a non-equity between the teams that were not able to get selected for, a, say, a two-team versus those that were. So comparing that into the CBQ world, certainly there are differences between say a three team and a two team in the CBQ universe. But my hypothesis is that the Delta is smaller, but Scott, what are your more accurate data science brain thoughts on that? Okay. So I always saw this delicate balance that required three teams in age two because of just how everything worked together. 20 questions, four quizzers on a team or up, up to four um three for an air out four for a quiz out toss-ups bonuses it all just kind of needed three teams for all of the dynamics to I, not necessarily balance well but at least balance in an expected way <clears throat> and so i'm trying to think now about age three and what are the so what are the changes um airing out and quizzing out are i would say significantly less of a factor because of how wide ranging the potential points scoring are right well yeah and i mean there's no there's no such thing as airing out in cbq um so there's that as well when you say going back for just a second when you say balance you're saying balance between say a three-team quiz and a two-team quiz when you're saying like like balance of opportunity right balance of because i mean essentially what we're talking about here is we're not we're not talking about a two-team quiz i mean i suppose we could but we're not usually talking about a two-team quiz in say a top nine uh positional outcome uh quiz rather we're talking about like points earnings in a two-team versus three-team quiz in a what we now call a score sum round in the in the previous universe it was called a preliminary quiz where we're counting points from the quiz rather than posi positions now granted positions heavily influence those points but in the second age but the idea being that what we care about is the points outcome and so was it unfair for a team to be in or not in a two-team quiz uh, opportunity based on the points that they are, could accrue relative to other teams in the prelim round. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're in a two team, 20 question quiz, you just had like the same amount of questions, but one third fewer of the opponents or actually 50% fewer of the opponents. Um, and so your scoring could go so much higher because in age two team score was especially for good teams was very bounded because of the three team 20 question setup. And so switching from three teams to two teams gave you an incredible ability to increase your team score because usually the best quizzer on a team could always quiz out regardless of if there was two teams, three teams, four teams <laughs> in the quiz. Um, and so it was their two, three and four quizzers who had such an increased opportunity to score when questions were less scarce because there were only two teams instead of three, but the same number of total questions available. Right. So like 
two team versus three team quiz had very little impact on the like top quizzers. So it almost had no impact for internationals. Um, but it might have had a large impact for Great West because your number two quizzers were kind of the ones in that 16 to 25 area. And any any ones of them that were in a two team 20 question quiz had a much easier time quizzing out. Right. Sure. Although it would have scoring implications at the IBQ level as well, wouldn't it? Because like if, if I'm, let's say at the IBQ level, you have, let's say five people on the team where any one of them, if given the opportunity to be able to get four questions uh, or, or basically jump to win the opportunity to answer four questions, if they were able to get that opportunity, they would basically be able to get them all correct, assuming that they could get enough of if they could jump when they wanted to, to jump. Right. They would be able to get those right. So then you would think then at the IBQ level, the opportunity to jump slower on more questions would be a dramatic advantage for be, yes. because because everybody on the team would like your your third chair fourth chair is basically the same as your first and second chair i mean not really but i mean they're a lot closer together in terms of their capabilities so the delta between a 20 point or 20 question two team quiz is versus three team is just massive when it comes to that in terms of like total points earned right yep and it was much less for a um two team 15 question quiz because that attempted to regain the balance of a three-team 20-question quiz. And I think those those two are roughly similar. Yeah, so that's actually something I wanted to talk about. So a 15-question two-team quiz seems to be like you're, you're, you're taking away the first uh, five questions. Uh, right. And so therefore... In an attempt to say we're going to we recognize that there is more points earning opportunity in a two team quiz, we're going to try to balance things. But it always felt kind of um, forced, like like non elegant, or that's not really the right word I'm looking for. Extremely imprecise. Like was five uh, questions being dropped from the beginning actually make it equal because i don't think it did i just i think it made it closer less egregiously out of balance but i think still out of balance yeah probably out of balance but one thing about that setup was quiz outs went from four to three which meant that you couldn't use this as a replacement for a prelim um and so it was really it was only used as a team tiebreaker and at that point who cares if it's unbalanced because we're just tiebreaking two teams Oh, that's and a good point. You should, I... you should never use this if, when it would have potential impact on any other teams outside of these two. Yeah, that's actually, a re- I, f- I completely forgot about that. Um, see, I was thinking 15, 15 was used in prelims, but it wasn't uh, for that very reason. So yeah, exactly. there was, it was, you were sort of locked into a bad uh, during prelim. And then in top nine, it was really just a, I guess a, a time savings because there really wasn't there wouldn't have been a reason to go from 20 down to 15 right right and see that's the problem is in prelims every single quiz like needs to be equal to every other prelim right um like exactly uh unless every team has 20 prelims and then you can have one that's not quite exactly the same Uh, but short of that especially if you're going to have three prelims or four 
um, you really need them to be as balanced as possible. Um, otherwise, yeah, like, I mean, you could totally see if, if we had to do a two-team 20-question quiz in age two, a team that normally averages 130 points could score like 210, you know, right, for being right. the exact same team. And that's like a really, really big difference. It wasn't like, oh, on average, they score 150 instead of 130. Like, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it seemed to be a lot more. <clears throat> right. But do we want to try to think about how the different rule set in age three might be Im- impacted? Yeah, let's jump into, into, into the uh, CBQ universe. So just to refresh uh, everybody's memory about how it works. Uh, so the number of queries is based on the product of the number of team or is the product of, of uh, four uh, and the number of teams. So four times three, typical universe of three equals 12. So when you're in a two team universe, you're only talking about eight base queries. Now this is like ABC. So, uh, unlike age two, uh, where, you know, on query, or I'm sorry, on question one, if there's an error, you just go to question two in CBQ. If there's an error on one, a, you go to to one B and so forth. Right. So, eight base queries or eight ABC queries. So you can have uh, quite a bit more than eight queries total in the quiz, but the idea that instead of 12, you're going down to eight. And so, and, and nothing else changes. So the, your quiz out, or there isn't a quiz out, but the air out, not air out, cause there is no air out. Sorry. Let me say that again. Reaching your ceiling uh, is calculated in exactly the same way. Uh, so you don't, that doesn't drop from say four queries down to three or anything like that. It still remains at four. It's just that the, uh, the, the opportunity to go after a query is reduced by the number of teams that are there. So yeah, that's the universe. How do, how do you think that balances out? So again, the standard is three teams, three quizzers, each 12 queries, right? And there, and quiz outs are how many? Uh, getting your ceiling is four if you're not doing open book. Right. Is four, which is one third of the quiz. And oh. there's no and there's no concept of an air out. Right. There's no concept of an air out. Because at no point can an air wait, um, burn a question for your opponents. Right. <clears throat> and... The B questions are worth just the same. Yeah. Everything, the B and the C's are worth exactly the same as the A's. Everything is the same. So then if you went to two teams, would any of what we've just talked about change? The only thing that changes is uh, you go from 12 uh, queries down to four. So basically each team get the, every, another way to think about it is every team that is in a quiz gets four queries to go after but they have to share them with every other team. So essentially each team brings four queries into the quiz that are then shared in a pool. So as you have more teams, you have more queries, but the per query, like the, the, the relationship of query to team is always the same. Yep. Um, you, you will like to hear this. I am struggling to think of any difference. I can think of one. Um, and I, it's it, it it is a thing, but 
it's a small thing, but it is definitely bigger than zero. Um, so here, here's my thinking. So start with a typical three-team quiz. Let's call it in, in third age CBQ, um, although I don't think it really matters. But we'll start with a, a three-team. And actually, it probably does matter that it's in CBQ because it goes to the from A to B to C. So uh, you've got a three-team. The To be able to get to the C query, so if you happen to be a team that gets a a C query, you have a bit of an advantage here because you're not fighting for the speed of the trigger. You're waiting for, you can wait for the entire prompt to come out. And then you can wait five or six seconds even uh, after the prompt has been completed, thinking about it before you trigger. Now that probably isn't, you know, a, a substantial big deal. But the idea being that you can actually listen to the entire query uh, and then think about it for a couple of seconds of like, okay, do I know this versus does somebody else on my team know it? Now you can't communicate with your teammate of like, oh, you, you know, you can't point to them and say, you take this one or anything like that. But you can think about it and say like, do I know this relative to my other, my other teammates and then trigger it in. And because you have that full query and you've had a second or two to think about it, I think that gives you an advantage in the C query versus what you would have in the B or A query, right? Now, I think the difference between A and B is it exists, but I think it's fairly small. I think the difference on average, right? I think the difference between A and B versus C is a big deal because say on a local translation, let's say all three teams are on the same translation. The a, a phrase prompt is seven words, but you don't need all seven of those words. Probably you might be able to get something key on the third or fourth word, right? So uh, you're, you can't jump on syllable count per se, but you can jump on spidey sense phrase keyness, I guess, for lack of a better uh, term. So a, a couple of words together and you're like, oh, that sounds key. That feels key. And so you trigger on that or something like that, right? Uh, that's going to lead toward, or it necessarily at upper levels of competition is going to lead towards a higher error rate than waiting for the full prompt. It needs to uh, have that happen because otherwise uh, you're you're leaving too many points on the table. To optimize your points gained, you have to be a little bit more aggressive at the higher levels of competition on your trigger speed. So in doing so, there is a an advantage to the team that gets a C query versus an A or a B, right? So in that kind of a universe, um, errors are not happy, right? Errors hurt your team in the CBQ universe, not from a points reduction perspective, but in a, you're giving a higher probability of the other teams uh, being able to earn more points, right? So there is the Delta. So like if, and, and let's think of it from the other pr uh, perspective, if you're in an A query, the error doesn't hurt you as much as if you are in a B query and that error happens. Uh, an error on a B query, I think hurts you and hurts the other team that aired before you more because it gives the, the last team an, a, a bit of an advantage going after that, that third query. Okay. So assuming that that's true, and I think it generally is, then a two team quiz is kind of beneficial, kind of in this. Well, maybe not. Okay. It's okay. It, uh, 
Okay. I don't know that it is non-equal to a three-team quiz, but it is different in the sense that errors hurt more. And B queries, being that they were the last ones in a two-team quiz, essentially a B in a two-team is the equivalent of a C in a three-team. A a B in a two-team query, a B query in a two-team quiz is more valuable than the A and you only you can pick that up off one error rather than having to have two errors proceed getting that that C query on a three team. So therefore a two team quiz is different than a three team quiz. But then again, if you are not aggressive on your alphas, then the team that you're competing against will be able to pick those up and dominate. So you have to be aggressive. So your error rate goes up. So then the idea of, well, how different is it? Um, (laughs) Say I'm talking myself in circles here. Maybe, maybe points wise opportunity, certainly opportunity wise, it's no different points wise. It may end up equalizing out just because yeah, the B queries are more valuable, but the A queries are more risky. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, I think all that you said is true, but the effects are small. In they are two versus three versus four. But then, then, then the question is, what are the effects? I think it's it's more. It's not about the points. It's more about the risk profile. It's almost like so. Take it to an extreme. Take it to an extreme. Let's say let's say three is the standard. Let's go the other direction. Let's go to four team. Uh, so what that means is I have to have three errors before I get to the D query and have that advantage of the D query, right? But that means the risk of an error on the A query is pretty low because it just sets up a three-team opportunity. And so the risk of the the B query is is the same way, right? So ultimately, the risk of the A query error is much lower, and the benefit of the D is extremely rare, (laughs) right? and the benefit is always the same, right? Uh, it, whether it, and, and we'll call it the last query of the sequence of errors, right? Is the benefit of that last query is, is always the same, but the risk of the error preceding it is much slower in four. Essentially, the risk is amortized across three queries rather than concatenated into a single query, right? In it versus a two team. And so, in the sense, like, compare a two team to a four team, I think the points opportunity is the same, but the risk of erring is merged into the A query. Say that again, the risk of erring is merged into the... Sort of the penalty, not the penalty, but the the the, the negative, the, the risk negative of erring across an A, B, or C query in a four team quiz is merged together all into the A query under a two-team qu- uh, quiz. But otherwise, I think the outcomes are all the same. I'm struggling to think of it concretely. Yeah. Um, I did think of something um, that could be an impact, and it's mm-hmm. about the distribution of quizzer ability. <clears throat> so think in a one-team quiz, if you have an amazing quizzer, they'll take 100% of the queries. Right. Well, up to their ceiling, which if they're not doing open book is four, right? Which right. is a hundred percent of the queries right. for a one team four query quiz. <clears throat> See, now I'm talking myself the opposite way. Cause I'm thinking like with every team that you add, you decrease the likelihood that the queries are monopolized by the top N quizzers. 
where n equals the number of teams. No, I don't I don't think that's true because unless the teams are non-equal. So let's say you have a team of three that has two open book quizzers, haven't memorized anything, haven't prepared anything, and one quizzer that is uh, full material verbatim with references, right? Uh, the in a one team quiz, you want your you want your open book quizzers to basically just sit, which is sad. Uh, but but ultimately, uh, you you can optimize by going after uh, having the the one quizzer get all four queries right in a three. Now imagine you take that team and you literally clone them, like you you know Star Trek transporter malfunction, and you get a copy of the team and a copy of the team uh, in every possible way, right? Uh, and then you have those three teams compete in a three team quiz. What'll end up happening then is you get in kind of an interesting dynamic there where what is optimal anymore? Uh, I think it's still optimal for each of those lead quizzers to go after four queries, reach their ceiling and then be done. But it's harder for them to do that because they don't have full reign of what is equivalently the last query of a run in every uh, every query right so they have to compete against each other to be able to get the triggers but then and and so then let's say one quizzer goes rapidly and gets their four queries and is out well it opens up the opportunity for their other quizzers who are open book to be able to go after you know an extra point or two and now granted those open book quizzers are going to be at a significant disadvantage relative to the other teams, uh, number one quizzers, but they still have an opportunity that's above zero and all it takes is one point and it puts them in the lead and prevents the other teams from, from winning. Right. So that pushes pressure on all of the first place uh, people, the first chairs of each of these three teams to try to get their quiz, uh, uh, to get their quiz queries done as early as possible. But then again, it's like still every team has the same opportunity that it would have in a one team quiz minus the competition on trigger speed. Right. And so like the second team adds uncertainty over what the winning trigger speed would be do additional teams keep adding more uncertainty or does it like level off at a certain point, which it probably should. I actually, I don't even think it levels off. I think it goes from, I think it goes from essentially in a one team quiz, every query is the last query of a sequence. And so you get the last query advantage all the time. As soon as you go to, uh, you know, two team quizzes and then every other uh, uh, quiz thereafter, you know, uh, in terms of sizes, two team, three team, four team, five team, a hundred team, <laughs> you know, theoretically, uh, you're always at a, a moment of saying uh, there is a risk to erring. It's just that the risk and the risk is always the total cumulative risk of getting to the end query of the series where there's only one team eligible to go after it. And that amount of risk is always the same. It's just that it's divided by, let's say, two teams versus three teams versus four teams, the higher it goes, right? So in a two-team quiz, all of that risk is uh, collapsed into a single query, whereas in a three-team, it's uh, uh, measured out across two, uh, two queries, and then in four, it's measured out over three queries. But ultimately, I think it's the same. Sure. All right, so we've talked ourselves into circles here. Is there a difference then between a three-team, two-team, and four-team? 
in terms of let's say point scoring opportunity, risk reward, and all that kind of stuff. I feel like I feel like yes, but I just I feel like it's really small, and maybe even to the point where I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to be able to figure out what it is and calculate it though. I'm starting to wonder if there isn't any different. It's a different dynamic, and certainly I think your strategy definitely has to adjust, right? So you should not engage in a three-team quiz, or let's say, do it the other way. You should not engage in a two-team quiz with the same exact strategic approach that you would a three-team quiz. But if you change your strategy to match how the dynamics are going to work, I don't know that you are in an advantage or disadvantage going into a two-team versus a three-team quiz. Yeah, I don't think so either. Hmm. Well, and on that bombshell, let's talk about golf. <laughs> so this will relate to quizzing as it relates to at least tracking questions. Um, but in golf, an important thing when you are playing a tournament to calculate is how far do I have to the hole, which is a yardage. Um, and there are things on the course that help you know the yardage, but there are, are many factors that can slightly change that exact yardage, such as like the the putting green is a large area, um, and the pin might be not in the middle, but it might be more towards the front or more towards the back, which changes the yardage. There might be wind either against you or with you or from the side. You might be hitting downhill or hitting uphill. You might be at high altitude. You might be at low altitude. It might be warm out. It might be cold out. All of these things change the yardage. And for the pros, they have a caddy who will do all of those calculations for them. <clears throat> so you could take 500 pro golfers and their 500 caddies, put them in the exact same situation. I bet you the caddies would, the 500 caddies would all come up with a number that's basically the same. Um, now for an amateur like me, not a pro, I don't play tournaments. I have technology like laser range finders or a GPS phone app that just does all the calculations for you and gives you the exact number. And those things are not allowed in pro tournaments. And the question is, if anyone who plays a pro tournament is just going to get a caddy, that's just going to get the same number. How much of like, do we think that these calculations are part of the skill of playing golf? such that we should um, prohibit the technology that gives you the, the accurate yardage in a second. And it reminds me of an internationals when Western PA realized, hey, if we get enough volunteers to track questions being asked in all four quiz rooms, we get an advantage, completely allowed. And it was something that other teams did not have or had not gathered the volunteer base to be able to do the same sort of comprehensive tracking. Like... Um, I would track every question of the quizzes that we were in, but that was one quarter of the quizzes. Um, now, now that I'm thinking, the questions were synchronized, but there were still like toss-ups and overtime and replacement questions. Um, <clears throat> but then at a certain point, the powers that be were like, we don't really want um, a team to have an advantage just because they have a better ability to have volunteers to track questions. And so there was some rule about like, hey, just because you hear a question doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to appear again. Um, I don't remember what the rule exactly changed to, if a question could be asked twice in prelims or or what. But the rules were subtly changed to try to decrease 
the benefit that you can get from tracking. Now that we're in the, the CBQ world or the, yeah, the CBQ world where questions are programmatically generated, there's, I keep saying essentially infinite. That's probably not true at all, but there's like enough that are not based on human tendencies and kind of shared conventions that you're not going to get um, very many repeat questions like ever. Also the fact that the quizzes are being generated by a computer algorithm and not by humans. So there's no possibility for a human to say, Hey, we're only going to have three queries that start with a W Hmm. (laughs) Um, right? Like none of that exists. So like already the benefit is severely low. But you've talked about, hey, what if we just published all the questions? And so, like, there's n- there's no benefit to people for making lists, or at least there's no benefit for people to make lists to have it. I think it's a form of study that's valuable. But, like, um, everyone gets every question and can have every list. Um, and similarly, you could say, like, hey, if we're running a meet like internationals or whatever we call it, um, every question that gets asked is then posted. Um I guess if we're putting on a competition, either for a year, for a single meet, for all-stars, for everyone, how do we decide what what aspects of the competition we don't want to be, I guess, part of the competition? Like, you know, I think publishing all of the potential questions is probably a good move and diverts some focus away from what you could say is ancillary, like tracking questions or making a list, and directs it back onto how well do you know the material? And it could be similar in golf. Like, hey, do we really want a caddy? Um, and by the way, some people think that there shouldn't even be caddies, but that's a different discussion. Um, do we really want <clears throat> a player doing all of these calculations? Or do we just – do we really care about can you execute the golf shot? Um, and I think it's just an interesting discussion when you're putting on any kind of competition when you know all the competitors are going to try to gain any edge that they can. Um, how do you decide what things – are too ancillary to the competition and you want to remove the possibility that anyone can get an edge from them. So some questions to start off with about golf um, or about this specific, uh, particular golf situation. So you mentioned the caddies, right? Um, but like it, at the professional level, my assumption would be that there are spectators. And so if you, if you're, you know, a golf tournament putter honor and you make some sort of policy that says the caddies are officially gagged, like the caddies are not allowed to share information with the golfers. I, I mean, are you, how is the theory that the, the audience, the spectators won't be able to shout like it's 47 meters or whatever. I, I, and the wind is blah, 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 or something like that. Right. Like, cause somebody with a little, you know, smartphone could have all of the data, you know, in their smartphone and, and run, real-time calculations and just yell out to the golfer some sort of strategic bit of data uh, that is, you know, public. It's open source data because all the data is there, right? And um, certainly TV commentators would have access to it. So essentially, like, would the organizers of a tournament think that that was bad? Would they try to muzzle the spectators? Yeah. So, I mean, spectators get kicked out, you know, for being unruly. And so I imagine you could easily put in a rule saying hey if a spectator gives a golfer golf information you get kicked out okay but but then take that to the logical conclusion then so if i'm a golfer who who is going to try to optimize by having that information i just have to hire one person per stroke 
to show up at as a spectator and then assuming a hundred percent capability of the organizers to kick out people who provide information uh then it's like well i've i've just acquired all the information and and all i had to do was just hire one person per stroke yeah i mean i, I mean it's silly but like at some point at, at some point if it's truly valuable it sounds like the information is valuable right if it's if it's that level of valuable like there's no way to snuff it out um i mean unless you bar spectators um you know that kind of thing right and so i think like i mean i know we're just talking in hypotheticals but sure. the likelihood is not that the rule goes that direction but that it goes the other direction of allow all the tech because everyone has the accurate yardage anyway and just let them calculate it in a half a second instead of 20 seconds right 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 um yeah, it is. It is interesting. It reminds me of something that happened at IOC a little bit. Uh, the last I, IOC or the only IOC at SPU uh, in July, there was a coach, uh, one of the teams that flew in They were, And of course, everybody was brand new to the system. They were brand new to the system and um, they had not had a chance to really practice. Well, I mean, they had practiced locally on the system, but they hadn't performed un under the new system. And they showed up and one of the coaches had prepared these laminated uh, flashcards that basically had the query type and something else. I forget exactly what they had on it, but it was like the query base type and, oh, the translation. They had the query base type and the translation and then a barcode on it. Well, not barcode, a color on the card, a stripe that was either like red yellow or green, which corresponded to trigger speeds of slow, medium, and, and fast. And the idea being that they were saying, well, if it's a local translation of this versus a foreign translation of this other query or whatever, here are the speed trigger speeds that we think are optimal that you should, that you should go for. And, uh, they, they flashed these cards and, uh, well, they actually asked me about it. They asked me about it a, a few days before the meet. And they said, is this okay? Is this kosher if we do that? And I'm like, yeah, like not only is this not prohibited in the rules, I actually think it's kind of an elegant, brilliant solution, right? It's, it's, it's kind of a great way of, of as long as you're, and I, I told him like, make sure you're flashing the cards prior to when I call ready begin. Like uh, you cannot communicate after that point. Um, but prior to that point, it's fine. And so they would flash the card right at the end of the preceding query. As I was like, basically I would make a ruling on it and then start in on the next query. They would quickly flash the card and put it down prior to the ready begin. And so their team was able to opt a little bit more closely optimize their trigger speed. I thought that was brilliant uh, as a way to go about doing that. Now, granted, they could have put that all into a little matrix table and they could have had their quizzers memorize the matrix table on the flight out because re you're really only talking about four base query types versus three, you know, translations. So four times three, 12, there was only really 12 uh, situations that they needed to memorize in terms of speed. So they could have easily memorized that, that reference uh, on the flight out toward the meet. Uh, so I didn't see it as that big of a deal. And it reminded me also of like the the odds cards for blackjack or 21. So uh, Scott, are you familiar with these? There's these little, uh, they're like odds cards that says, you know, if the dealer is showing this and you are showing and you have 
X, right? Here is what you should, what, this is the optimal strategy, all other things being equal that you should do for that particular hand of blackjack. And, you know, you still lose like, like ultimately if you play enough, you end up losing, but you lose a lot slower. And I want to say it's like in the 1% uh, range or something like that over time. So you know, you're, you're, you're still going to run out of money and go bust, but it's just going to take you hours as opposed to minutes to be able to get there. If you're, if you're following that strategy and for, I think basically every casino, if you walk into the casino and you ask a, and of course I'm not a, I'm not a gambler, so I don't really know what I'm talking about here, but uh, if you walk into the casino and you show them the card and you say, Hey, can I reference this card while I'm playing blackjack? The the casino will typically say, yes, sure. It's totally fine because the casino knows, well, you're, you could have memorized that card pretty easily. That's not a big deal. And you're still going to lose anyway. And we're still going to make money off of you in the long term. So yes, go ahead. Right. And that's of course, if you play the card optimally, but anyway, I just, I found going back to IOC, I found the idea of those flashcards very interesting. And of course in CBQ, the idea being is, and actually not just the idea, it's a, it, part of the rules, uh, for a, a quiz and for a meet, you should be publishing your, uh, distributions ahead of time, which is to say the combination of base query types and translations for every query of every quiz in that meet. And so you know, taking that and combining it with the draw, you can see ahead of the meet, you can see, oh, quiz four, query three, we're going to be competing on this base type, this translation against these quizzers. Therefore, this should be our, our speed for that particular thing. And now granted, keeping all of that data in one's head is bordering on astronomical and, but a coach can remind quizzers ahead of time, uh, you know, Hey, uh, in this quiz query four, you need to do this query six, you need to do that. Now, even that might be a little bit too much to keep in one's mind, you know, uh, going into the process, but theoretically there are these things called timeouts granted you only get one of them. So use it strategically, but there are ways to do that. And the flashcards is a, is a legitimate, uh, opportunity there. The only thing is you got to make sure you know, make sure you're not flashing communication after the ready begin, because otherwise that's a foul and it's a, and it's a pretty egregious foul. It's a foul on the entire team. Yeah. But I mean, do you think that the, the reason that there's greater value for this in H3 versus H2, because the queers are potentially known ahead of time and there's more complexity because of all the base subtypes and the wider range of potential scores. Um, I don't know if it makes any difference. Maybe I'm misunderstanding your question, but I don't think now, granted, you can't publish all of your questions. So in age two, you can't publish all your questions ahead of time, right? That would be bad. Similar in CBQ H3, you can't publish all your queries. Like what is the actual query of query three a or something like that? You can't publish that ahead of time. That would be very bad um, for hopefully obvious reasons for everybody. But I don't see that there's any problem in second age publishing your, your distribution ahead of time, your, your type distribution, like, uh, qu uh, question two is going to be a quote question. Question three is going to be a chapter verse reference question, that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't know that that's, I don't know that that's a bad thing. No, I don't, I don't think it is either. Um, I'm just thinking like in age two, 
you couldn't publish the distribution because of subs would be one reason, right? You would know exactly when to sub based on what they what types they could get or not. Oh, um, well, okay, but but I don't think you can't. <clears throat> I think I think what it does is it allows coaches to optimize when they sub. But it would be fair. It would certainly still be fair to everybody. Sure, sure. It would be fair, but it would increase the value of specialism. That's true. That is true. Yeah. Um, I'm yeah, definitely not saying it's unfair. Um, but like in age two, sure, like competition level almost didn't matter. Like if you're a quizzer, you knew what you knew and you knew how much of the question you needed to get them right reliably. And so your competition really just affected whether or not you were going to win a jump or not. But there, there was like not lots of changes in speed, um, quiz to quiz. Whereas in age three, the exact same quizzer could trigger at a different speed based off of the subtype, um, selections they make, you know, or even a, a scenario like, Oh, it's a, it's a C in a three team. I guess you could have a, you could and should have a, a, a team strategy that you've worked out beforehand that emphasizes what a C is. <laughs> Just like in age two, if you have a team bonus, you know to wait for the whole thing. Right. But I don't know. Like, <clears throat> I think if there is this complexity in age three, um, th- if you can reduce it during the quiz for your quizzers, you should do it, <laughs> um, which is all that this is doing. Yeah. As a coach. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, totally agree. And I mean, that was that was a in the back of my mind when I was putting together the rule set for CBQ was this was not like a first principle, but it was definitely a derived principle. I wanted coaches to have a, a more meaningful role, not just be encouragers. And that's not to underestimate the encouragement factor of what coaching is about. But I wanted coaches to be able to speak into strategy in more meaningful ways. And that was actually, that was, that was okay. So going back to the Madras meet, there was actually a a coach that was very invested in maximizing their, I think all of the coaches obviously were very invested in their quizzers, but this particular coach was heavily invested in optimizing this, the team strategy. And it was very interesting how they were approaching things. They were calling timeouts almost every quiz or calling the timeout that they were given uh, almost every quiz, they were thinking through the implications of, of the patterns of the query types and where situations were happening within the quiz. And I thought that was interesting to see that process come about where the coaches could have the opportunity of, of getting more heavily involved and having a heavier influence, a stronger influence on the outcome of the quiz through strategic oversight and advisement of their quizzers. So I'll try to be quick about this, but I was talking with someone about pro sports and the potential variance of certain plays. So for example, when I talk about variance, a high variance play would be a play that has a big impact on the win probability of a team. Um, And a low variance play would be one that has a small impact. So for example, in football, a turnover is a very high variance play. It changes the win probability of the two teams a lot when there's a turnover. Um, and football has kind of a lot of these plays, like a big pass or a kick return for a touchdown. These are like very high variance plays. 
Contrast that to basketball. There aren't really a whole lot of high variance plays in basketball. Like a three pointer is better than a is more variance than a two pointer, but a small amount. Um, and so, really, optimal strategy in basketball is really a, a thousand really small decisions that hopefully add up over the course of a game or a season. Whereas in football. <clears throat> you can coach very specifically and say like, hey, we want to avoid turnovers at all costs. We want to avoid long passes at all costs and we'll give up short passes. Um, and you can make those decisions to lower the potential variance of plays. When it comes to quizzing, even age three, I see whatever a coach can do during a quiz as potentially a lot of really low variance decisions. Like there are things they can do, but to me they don't seem potentially very large. Um, now for a quizzer, there could be some high variance decisions. Like one of them is if you're a dominant quizzer, don't do anything open book ever, right? Like, um, that would be a high variance negative decision for a very excellent dominant quizzer to get to specify an open book query, right? Most of the time, I, I mean, like, like I would say 99% of the time, I think that's true. However, I think there can be a rare situation, probably in like, say top nine, you're getting into like close to query 12 or something like that. And you actually want to deprive the other team of the opportunity and so if you, if you trigger in on something and you, you aren't going to be able to get it correct, then like synonymously, then there may be a, an argument to be made of saying, go open book to be able to get uh, to be able to get counted correct. Uh, because if you get, if you go synonymous or verbatim or something, you get it incorrect. The other team has the opportunity to go uh, grab some points. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. But, but anyway, but, like, but to oh, your point, right. I think that's like, like a 1% scenario. Um, it's like, it, it has to be, it, you're, you're basically talking about something that has to be in, in a, in a, in a positional, uh, quiz, a positional, a positional bracket quiz late in the quiz and where the teams are tight and the, the, yeah. So it's, it's, it is a, it's a case, but it's definitely a one-off. Right. Um, when, would you agree that. Coaches have an impact, but it's all like really low variance. Um, I think, yeah, in CBQ, I think the coaches definitely have low variance, but I think it's higher variance than in in second age by a substantial margin. I would agree with that because there's just more potential decisions for a quizzer to make. Right. The strategies, there's there are easily 10x the sort of level of strategic thinking uh, opportunity in CBQ than in second age. And it's to the point where to really flush all of that out for a team at a higher level of, now at a lower, at a mid and lower level competition, it's probably not, not that big of a deal, but if you get into the higher level competitions, exercising that level of strategy is going to be overwhelming for most quizzers. And even for the quizzers where it's not overwhelming, I don't want I wouldn't want them to have to expend mental cycles on that. It's going to tire them out. Uh, and so, you know, having the coach be able to take up that mental burden and to be able to <clears throat> advise the team, I think is uh, significant benefits uh, come from that. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it definitely took the quizzers to execute on it, but one of the best things I did as a coach was try to simplify it as much as possible. And so every quizzer had a role 
and they all had a target speed on whatever types that they were jumping on. And we had, I had done so much research that I told them like, Hey, if you go faster than this, you're going to err at too high of a rate. Right. And if you go slow, t- slower on it and we lose the jump, your opponent's going to err at too high of a rate. So all you have to do is hit this speed. And if you win the jump, like, you know, from your study that you're going to get it right enough of the time for it to be worth it. Like we've done the work. And so like every time another team would call a timeout, I would just go up and I would be like, just, just try to hit your speeds. And it didn't matter if we had like gotten the first four, right. Or if the other teams had gotten the first four, right. It was completely irrelevant. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, nothing can happen in this quiz for us to change our strategy unless it's like an elimination quiz and we're down 70 with four questions left. Then we change our strategy. But short of that, um, we're not. And I think it can largely be that way in age three as well, right? Like yeah. for that dominant quizzer, they have their strategy. They probably shouldn't deviate from it, right? Like right. until a level of competition like makes questions scarce for them, um, there's absolutely no reason to change. And even for a quizzer that is less dominant, you still know what you know. And there would be trigger speed decisions and base subtype decisions that would result in you not scoring optimally. And so it doesn't matter what other people are doing. You can't make decisions just to try to trigger quicker than them if it would result in you scoring suboptimally. Right, exactly. Well, on that bombshell, we should probably wrap things up here. I want to encourage everybody, if you've got any kind of feedback uh, that you want to send to Scott and me, please email us at iq at cbqz.org. If you're in Canada, that's iq at cbqz.org. And you can follow us and should follow us on Twitter. Our account there is at Inside Quizzing. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening. And thank you, Scott. Thank you, Griffin. And thank you to all of our listeners.